Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. A lifetime of making documentaries uh, has convinced award-winning filmmaker Kristen Johnson of the power of the real. But now she's ready to use every escapist movie trick in the book, staging an inventive and fantastical ways for her to document her 86-year-old father to die while hoping that cinema will help bend time, laugh at pain, and keep her father alive forever. And that is the basic premise behind this amazing documentary film called Dick Johnson <laughs> is Dead. And we're joined today by the director, producer, and cinematographer, and that would be Kirsten Johnson. Kirsten, welcome to Film School Radio. Oh, thank you so much. You know, like, no small ambition. I want to, like, spend time, <laughs> my dad alive forever, have a good time doing it, yeah. make a film that's relevant for the pandemic, even before I knew the pandemic was happening, you know. Right, right, right. All those things. I dream small. <laughs> Well, uh, with camera person, you you know you reinvented the way of telling stories in a, in your in a documentary format in a way that we're so uh, uh, alive. And um, the trick here is, in many ways, it's the same challenge. Tell yes. me a little bit about when you made that decision that you wanted to do this documentary. What was it that prompted you to want to make uh, Dick Johnson is dead? Well, you know, I think the key word in your sentence is aliveness and liveness. How do we connect to our own liveness and our own need as humans? Why are we making things? Why are we trying to make things? Why are we trying to make movies that might be seen? Camera person for me came out of this need that accumulated over the years of working as a cinematographer on documentaries, um, but it showing it, was this really live process. Um, the feedback that I got about camera person has, has and is to this day transforming the way I think about the world. And I sort of, you know, there was all of this like little clues in camera person to me of, you know, that, that we brought my mother back to life, that we could cut the shot of her ashes against footage of her Alive was like, woo, it's that trick of Pulp Fiction where John Travolta reappears again. You know, that Kathy Lecter's mother who has committed suicide, suddenly we're talking about her and the snow falls off the roof. And Kathy and I look at each other, you know, like, who's here? She's back. You know, I, I think of film in life and death terms in some ways, I think, because I filmed in so many places where people are living in life and death situations. Once you've filmed with people, then time goes on and then some of them die. And you have these filmic records of them and you have the memories of them. The moment of when Dick Johnson is dead, when did it begin? I think it's scattered all throughout my life in certain ways. And certainly I had a dream uh, in 2016 while I was showing camera person around in the world in which a man sat up and said, I'm Dick Johnson and I'm not dead yet. And that prompted this sort of crazy impulse of like, oh, can we do his funeral while he's still alive? You know, like, and this context in which we have so much exploration happening in the nonfiction world and in the fiction world, you know, Chloe Zhao making the writer and Nomad Land, as well as people in the documentary world, you know, so this sort of going back and forth that's happening was just like 
it's enticing in all kinds of ways. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking of, uh, I just saw a film called Space Dogs. And for yes. the life of me, I couldn't tell if that was a documentary or a narrative film. I, I couldn't tell you what I, what I would have said as the definitive answer on that. And I think back on Earl Morris's uh, Wormwood and how he I mean, really integrates a narrative film inside of a, a documentary film. So to your point, I think it's so wonderful that these, these forms are meeting somewhere in, I don't know if it's the middle, but they're meeting in this very creative way. They are meeting. And, and I think for me, the relationship that that has to uh, mortality, you know, that we would like to think um, the line between life and death is such a clear and solid one. But I think dementia, those of us who love people with dementia or have loved people with dementia, we know that there's these really strange slippages that happen. And that, you know, in some ways I could say my father is already dead year two into dementia and yet he is still completely there right how is that possible how is it possible for my father to not know that i'm his daughter and for him to still be alive but it is so that i think of that slippage um between documentary and fiction films and all the different names we call it and i think of the slippage between life and death this sort of slow fade or flickering of lights or lights going on and off all of those all of those metaphors resonate and also, in, in, in light of the fact that you kill him several times in, <laughs> in the Johnson And he estate. enjoys it. <laughs> well, and, and I want to go back to something you said earlier in our conversation, and, and I think this is so true of this, the human condition, is, is that we tell stories in order, in some way, in order to make sense of things. And with the things that we can't control, the things that are beyond our understanding, all those things, and storytelling is so fundamental to the human existence and I think that's yeah. what I'm saying and I don't I mean I don't think I'm making any sense of this situation with Dick Johnson is dead but I am wondering at it I am yeah. you know asking cinema to help me question and help me figure out how I can keep my dad as central to himself and to me as he has been making this film really did give me ways it helped me invent ways for us to keep having our relationship. I just saw, speaking of another documentary uh, called Our Time Machine, and I thought they said something in that that was profound, and that was that our memories are one of our time machines, and our dreams are the other time machine, right? They're the the future and the past, and And again, I think this is in Dick Johnson is Dead, you're seeing that that play out. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And cinema is our cinema. Obviously, you know they named their movie that re, that for a reason, right? Movies are our time machine. For me, camera work has been a time machine. Um, I just recently listened to a great interview with um, the late Oliver Sacks and Terry Gross, and he was talking about his book Hallucinations, and he was saying that um, people who are bereaved do experience hallucinations quite often. Uh, it's a quite common experience. Through his work with people who have a different syndrome, he was able to discover that when you've lost a person and you have a hallucination of them, you, it's not activating the part of your brain that's involved with memory. It's activating the part of your brain that's involved with seeing and hearing. Mm-hmm. So you are actually having the experience, not the imagination of the person, but the experience of seeing them. You know, I think about that. That is cinema, right? We experience seeing a person 
I experienced seeing Bud Cork. I experienced see, seeing Buster Keaton. They are alive for me, you know, even as they're almost killing themselves in their own movies, right? <laughs> That's true. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Kirsten Johnson. She is the director of new documentary film that is going to be out on Netflix on October 2nd, and that's called Dick Johnson is Dead. And I don't know if we've explained Dick enough. Johnson lives! <laughs> <laughs> the film is about Dick Johnson, her father, who's a psychiatrist at, 80, at the age of 86 years old, who is uh, in the process of going through dementia, Alzheimer's, or so many. By the way, that's another thing about dementia, there are something like 75, 80 different diagnoses of what dementia is. We just have sort of lumped all of them under the umbrella of Alzheimer's, I think, by the way. That's right. And I, I might say, you know, just as I believe, like, we each have a different way of seeing the world, and it's a constantly shifting way of seeing the world, I think probably uh, dementia is specific to each person. Yeah. So, you know, if you think of Alan Berliner's great film about his cousin's dementia. His cousin was a poet. He uses incredible use of words in his dementia. I think my mother's dementia connected to her relationship to being a visual person. She had all kinds of um, sort of spatial dementia so that she would think a shadow was a hole. She would think that um, what she was seeing in front of her was what was behind her. So she wouldn't want to sit down. I mean, we once famously had this amazing struggle because I was trying to pull her out of a boat onto a dock and she thought I was pushing her into the water. Yeah. So we had this incredible death struggle where she was trying to pull me into the water and I was trying to keep her from falling in, but she was convinced that the opposite was true. Yeah. I do think that what you're saying is true, that, that there are as many forms of dementia as there are people. I think you're right. I think you're right. And speaking of that, my mom was uh, diagnosed with dementia for 10 years. She, she struggled with it. And her, her form um, was acting out. She had been traumatized early in life, something we didn't know as, as kids. And she spent a good part of that time angry. And then, mm. she got to a, which, and then she got to a point where she was exceedingly happy. And it, mm. went for, it just kind of flipped completely where she would she would just laugh and so i don't you know oh how amazing yeah and and i mean how terrible and amazing but in some ways she had a secret she could not share with you with her conscious self it whatever had happened was too traumatic um too disturbing and and then in some ways the disease permitted it to be revealed the shame of it was gone and the anger was present you know i mean i think the fact of terrible trauma, like the people who have suffered it deserve to be angry, but rarely get to be angry. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, and then like how amazing that then like something was relief released and she could laugh. My, my like question for you is what were the durations of each? How long did the anger last? How long did the laughter last? The anger lasted probably four or five years where she was just angry. And then, she was at a good facility. She was getting good care. And I spent a fair amount of time with her and she loved to listen to music. And I think over time, she just sort of surrendered herself to that. I, her trauma was a sexual assault, you know? And so I don't think she ever got over it. So, no. I mean, in some, no. you know, some very real ways. And finally, she got to that point in her life where she didn't seem to let go of it. And she seemed particularly, you know, like I said, she was exceedingly happy. When I would see her 
And the, this is one of the things that I think you're, you've done with your film, with your father. And that is, every time I was with her, I told her that everything I wanted to tell her every time I saw her. Yeah. Right? I yes. would tell her yeah. the same. I told her the same thing over and over, but I I never wanted to leave her without her knowing. So that's right. And the, you know, my dad said that to me today. He said, "I just want to make sure you know I love you." And I was like, "I know, Dad." <laughs> but you know, like that was his wish, right? Like that's the wish yeah. to make sure that information is communicated. I mean, I think we've learned so much in the last couple of decades of how long lasting trauma is and particularly trauma to the body sexual trauma like the 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 losing of agency over oneself right exactly. you know i i think you know some of us get to be in moments of in history where there's some space to be able to share what we've experienced and some people like never will get the chance to open up about like you know, these really terrible hurts. And I, you know, I mean, I think the way in which I struggle with like how brutally difficult dementia is, is also to say new things get allowed. Um, you know, so for my mother, who was someone who really took care of other people very much during her life, she got to like lay that down a little bit, like be done taking care of people. There was also a moment where she spoke in this voice of a man from like, you know, from the West where she was saying, it's not your fault, Katie Jo, it's not your fault. And I was like, oh my God, this is the voice of someone talking to my mom after her mom's car accident and like saying, it's not your fault that, you know, you were driving the car and your mom got killed. It's not your fault. Right. And that, that that voice had been in my mom's head her entire life right. and I'd never heard it. And yet this sort of interior life that people have that, that we don't think we can share, it is dangerous to share. You know, there are all these reasons why we don't speak of certain things, but I think these shifts, you know, in consciousness allow certain things to be revealed. And also, you know, the, the moment of death allows things to be revealed you know, how much we care, um, how great the loss is. Do you think that um, your mother, like, how is she present right now in this conversation with us? What would your mother ask me? That's a great question. Um, what would she ask? What would she, she was a very, she was a very bright woman. Um, she would, wow, that's a great question. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, let me think about it because so there's something I want to go back to because as they fade, as these people's memories fade and as their sense of themselves begins to fade, I think there are moments of clarity. You mentioned it in the, in the film with your father, those were moments of clarity. And for me, those were just out of the blue, completely unexpected. And she would just say something that was so present. I think that's when those people, the, the, the way you're describing experiencing trauma, dealing with trauma, it's, it's in those moments that there, there's a, the less of a filter to worry about who thinks what about what you're that's about right. to say. And I think, that's that's, right. I think that may have been those moments of clarity may have helped my mom resolve that. What I keep thinking, and I don't know if it's a good question even, is that, oh gosh, how will people, how will people remember me? Mm. How will people remember me? How they will remember her? Well, I mean, how will people remember people with dementia? Did they remember just the dementia? Well, I'll tell you, you know, where, where, that, where that question comes from was watching 
uh, one of the first films I ever worked on was the film about Jacques Derrida. And um, Kirby Dick came, Amy Zarian had been working on the film and then Kirby Dick joined the project. And, you know, Derrida would sort of almost every question anyone asked him, he'd already thought of. And then Kirby Dick sat down and he said, which philosopher would be your mother? And you could just see Derrida's brain explode. And he broke down the history of misogyny in relationship to philosophy, uh, the impossibility of having a mother who was a philosopher. You know, it just, it was like this, you know, remarkable experience of watching a brilliant person think in the moment. I think about shame and how powerful it is as a force that keeps us from collaboration, from creativity, from compassion. You know, it's this sort of performance of who we think we need to be or a fear of if we reveal who we actually are, we will be rejected or reviled or hurt. And some of that's true. You know, like some, like many people have great reasons to protect themselves and must. But my father, the way he listened to me and the way I shared with him the sort of curiosity about how psychology works like sort of it allowed um, things that might be shameful to to be just sort of looked at and wondered about, um, you know. And it's like and it's like we can have so much compassion for who your mother was. This person who had to live with something shameful that she couldn't share right. for her entire life, and yet she couldn't allow that kindness to herself, right? right? Because then it's a way in which like agency doesn't exist, right? So, cause it's like, oh, that little child couldn't stop that from right. happening. Right. And that means I couldn't stop it, right? So, so these, these things I think that we hold inside of ourselves that we work on and work on over time, if there can be a safe space for it to come out, yeah. then we can share the shame and share the, our impotency and our anger and our frustration and our outrage, you know? And I think that's where we are on a societal level right now is there's all kinds of um, denial about the injustice of the structures we have built. And how do we face that together? Well, we've got a lot of shame that racism is still the like, the like defining feature of our nation that's shameful how can that still be and yet we must speak of it right and so you know for me the taboo of this film um the speaking of how my like everything's okay my dad lived a great life he you know he had a a family he wished for he had a wonderful career he got to live the American dream. He's an old white American man who did fine. He doesn't need this film, right? And yet I need him not to die. And these these deep shames and these deep needs inside of ourselves, like how do we open it up so that we can talk about the ways in which we all need to cope with the pain of being human and these impossible situations we are faced with, you know, dementia is an impossible situation. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And yet, uh, you know, and, and human suffering is impossible. Sexual trauma is impossible. And yet humans, humans live with it and through it. 
Right. So how do we, how do we be with people? How do we be with ourselves? And then, you know, good Lord, like we'll desperately need a laugh, right? <laughs> so, so that's what the quest of this film is engaged with. Yeah. I'll leave you with this. Uh, thank you. You've been very generous with your time today. Um, and that is my mom in her final years taught me the, the greatest gift she's ever, she ever gave me, which was compassion. Mm. I learned compassion in ways that I would never have learned be, unless we had, the two of us had gone through it together. And so for me, and that's your film is a very compassionate film. Mm. And, and, you, and you share that compassion with your, with your father, he shares it with you. And I just think uh, it, it's just a remarkable document to the way that we can be with one another if we choose to. We can be with one another and we can be with, one another in this strange web of time and you know your mother is here with us today please yeah. tell me her name beverly beverly and you know it's like i have compassion for beverly in this moment i can hear the compassion she gave you in your voice and you know it's like we brought beverly to life today she's back with us right and and i think that is what love is it is ongoing and cinema gives us this chance to experience the way in which embracing ongoing love and compassion uh, heals us yeah. and gives us reason to laugh and gives us reason to celebrate. And I just so touched that you would share, you know, the intimacy of Beverly's story with me, because I think it's like we let go of the shame of it. You know, it's like that happened to Beverly. Right. And I think that's, that's the thing. It's like, the what happened then transforms and becomes what can happen with all of us. This has been amazing. So thank you so very it much. It really has. It really has been amazing. And I just, I think if we can, if we can, we can look at these violences in the face, then we can shift things. We, we have to, because, we, you know, we have to, because too many people suffer. In well, ways that and are we're and we're rapidly approaching. Yeah, we're rapidly approaching a point in in the, in the evolution of our species where we have to be able to do the hard work with each other. Yeah, yeah, right? yes, we really right, do. That's right. We're running that's out right. of time yeah. to be effing right. around this with each other. This is the time. This <laughs> is the time. So we did some hard work with each other today, but we also did beautiful work with each other today, and I'm so grateful. And I and I really. Um, this is what I wish for from this film is that it opens me up to other people and the way in which they, they love the people they are afraid of losing, they wish they hadn't lost, right. and who somehow stay forever. So long live Beverly. Long live Beverly. <laughs> thank you so much. Dick Johnson right. is dead. Kirsten Johnson, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 